Today, we embark on the riveting exploration of a life laden with intrigue, conflict and the enduring echoes of power. The legacy of Saddam Hussein and the tumultuous landscape of Iraq. As we delve into the corridors of time, let us peer into the rise of a man who would become a central figure in the complex narrative of the Middle East. Saddam Hussein, a name that resonates with both fascination and dread, steered Iraq through an era marked by authoritarian rule, regional tensions and global scrutiny. Our journey begins in the dusty streets of Tikrit, Saddam's birthplace, tracing the footsteps of a young man whose destiny would intertwine with the fates of a nation. From his early political ambition to the consolidation of power, we navigate through the intricate webs of alliances, betrayals and the cunning strategies that propelled him to the summit of Iraqi leadership. But Saddam's story is not confined to the borders of Iraq. It reverberates globally. We examine the global landscape that set the stage for the Iran-Iraq war, the invasion of Kuwait, and the subsequent Gulf War that drew the world's attention. The consequences of these events, etched into the history books, continue to shape the geopolitical chessboard we navigate today. Hi everybody and welcome back to the Dark History Podcast, where we explore the darkest parts of human history. Hope everybody is well. I'm Rob, your host as always. Welcome to the new episode. Dark Biography, Saddam Hussein, The Necessary Evil. Saddam Hussein. Was he a necessary evil in the Middle East? Now 20 years ago, even mentioning this question would have got you tired and feathered. But now, you can see the chaos that has befell Iraq and the Middle East as a whole. You have Islamic extremists running amok, countries such as Iraq in absolute civil chaos, wars, civil wars and proxy wars everywhere, and these seem to have ramped up exponentially over the last two decades. Is this because a power vacuum was created when the Iraqi strongman was deposed? Well, join us as we peel back the layers of propaganda, uncover the human stories obscured by political rhetoric, and analyse the enduring impact of Saddam Hussein's life and rule on the people and the region. As we traverse the annals of time, we invite you to immerse yourself in the complexities, contradictions and controversies that define this pivotal chapter in history of Iraq and the borders of the Middle East. So without further ado, please turn off those lights, sit back and relax next to the fire for more dark history. Saddam Hussein was born on April the 28th, 1937, in the dusty, sand-drenched streets of Tikrit, Iraq. His father, who was a shepherd, disappeared several months before Saddam was born, 
A few months later, Saddam's older brother died of cancer. So when Saddam was born, his mother, racked with guilt and despair, became severely depressed. Due to her grief, she unfortunately was unable to effectively care for Saddam, and at the age of three, he would be sent to Baghdad to live with his uncle Kahir Allah Talfa. Years later, Saddam would return to the desolate village of Al-Arja to live with his mother, but after suffering abuse at the hands of his stepfather, he fled to Baghdad again to live with Talfa, a devout Sunni Muslim, an ardent Arab nationalist, whose politics would have profound influences on the young Saddam. After attending the nationalist Al-Khar secondary school in Baghdad in 1957, at the age of 20, Saddam joined the Ba'athist party, whose ultimate ideological aim was the unity of Arab states in the Middle East. Saddam had a few brushes with the law in his early life, but in 1958, Saddam's legal troubles would come to a head. He was arrested for killing his brother-in-law, who by all intents and purposes was a communist, and he had spent six months in prison. Following his release, Saddam again would find himself in hot water with the law, but this time on a more grander scale. On October 7th, 1959, Saddam and other members of the Ba'athist party attempted to assassinate Iraq's then-president, Abd al-Karim Qasim. Qasim's resistance to join in the nascent United Arab Republic and his alliance with Iraq's Communist Party had put him at odds with the Ba'athists. During the assassination attempt, Qasim's chauffeur was killed and Qasim was shot several times, but he survived. Saddam was shot in the leg. Several of the would-be assassins were caught, tried and executed. But Saddam and several others managed to escape to Syria, where Saddam stayed briefly before fleeing to Egypt, where he attended law school. In 1963, when Qasim's government was overthrown in the so-called Ramadan Revolution, Saddam returned to Iraq, but he was arrested the following year as a result of infighting in the Ba'athist party. While in prison, however, he remained involved in politics and in 1966 was appointed Deputy Secretary of the Regional Command. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Shortly thereafter, he managed to escape prison and in the years that followed, continued to strengthen its political power. In 1968, Saddam participated in a bloodless but successful Ba'athist coup that resulted in Hamed, 
Hassan al-Bakir becoming Iraq's president and Saddam his deputy. During al-Bakir's presidency, Saddam proved himself to be an effective and progressive politician, albeit a decidedly ruthless one. He did much to modernise Iraq's infrastructure, industry and healthcare system, and he also raised social services, education and farming subsidies to levels unparalleled in other Arab countries in the region. He also nationalised Iraq's oil industry, just before the energy crisis of 1973, which resulted in massive revenues for the nation. During that same time, Saddam helped develop Iraq's first chemical weapons programme and, to guard it against coups, creating a powerful security apparatus which included both Ba'athist paramilitary groups and the People's Army, which frequently used torture, rape and assassination to achieve its goals. In 1979, when al-Bakir attempted to unite Iraq and Syria in a move that would have left Saddam effectively powerless. Saddam forced al-Bakir to resign, and on the 16th of July 1979, Saddam became president of Iraq. Less than a week later, he called an assembly of the Ba'athist party. During the meeting, a list of 68 names were read out loud, and each person on the list was promptly arrested and removed from the room. Of those 68, all were tried and found guilty of treason, and 22 were sentenced to death. By early August of 1979, hundreds of Saddam's political foes had been executed. The same year that Saddam ascended to the presidency, Ayatollah Khomeini led a successful Islamic revolution in Iraq's neighbour to the northeast, Iran. Saddam, whose political power rested in part upon the support of Iraq's minority Sunni population, worried that development in the Shiite majority Iran could lead to a similar uprising in Iraq. In response, on September the 22nd, 1980, Saddam ordered Iraq's forces to invade the oil-rich region of Khuzestan in Iran. The conflict soon blossomed into an all-out war. Western nations and much of the Arab world, fearful of the spread of Islamic radicalism and what it would mean to the region and the world, laid their support firmly behind Saddam, despite the fact that his invasion of Iran clearly violated international law. During the conflict, these same fears would cause the international community to essentially ignore Iraq's use of chemical weapons, its genocidal dealing with the Kurdish population. One such chemical attack occurred on March 16th, 1988. Hussein committed one of the worst atrocities of the modern era, the murder by poison gas of thousands of civilians in the Kurdish-Iraqi town of Halabja. As part of a genocidal campaign against the Kurds and other ethnic groups in northern Iraq, government forces spent two days shelling the city of Halabja with rockets, napalm and incendiary gel that sticks to skin and causes terrible burns. On the second day, 
March the 16th, they suddenly changed tactics, attacking with aircraft. The Iraqi forces began to pepper the civilian parts of the city with canisters of chemical weapons, including mustard gas, and the nerve agent Sarin, Tabon and VX. That day, some 3,500 to 5,000 people died within minutes, gasping and choking as their lungs filled with fluid. Some, hit with the nerve agent, would be left with painful convulsions and inevitably die through cardiac arrest or suffocation. Another 7,000 to 10,000 were injured, crippled or suffered long-term health problems. On August 20th, 1988, after years of intense conflict that had devolved into a bloody stalemate, which had left hundreds of thousands of dead on both sides, a ceasefire agreement was finally reached. Now, I know I've not really gone into details of the Iran-Iraq war here, but it really does deserve its own episode. So, I just sort of give you the gist of it, as it's a big part in Saddam's life. Saddam was an incredibly brutal man. He had approximately 40 of his own relatives murdered. He used allegations of prostitution to intimidate opponents, and the allegations were used by the regime to justify the barbaric beheadings of women. There had been documented chemical attacks by the regime from 1983 to 1988, resulting in some 30,000 Iraqi and Iranian deaths. He and the regime carried out an unspecified number of executions in a bid to keep Saddam's grip on power. The Iraqi president had brutally put down Kurdish rebellions in the north and sheer uprisings in the south. Saddam Hussein was married to Sajita Kahir La Talfa and had two sons and three daughters. Two of his daughters were married to the brothers, Saddam Kamil and Hussein Kamil, who defected to Jordan with their families in 1995. The brothers returned to Iraq after they were pardoned by the president, but they were killed upon arrival to Baghdad. While Iraqi media reports say they were killed by their tribe that were outraged by their defection, other reports said they were killed by Saddam and his two sons, Uday and Kusay. Now, Uday Hussein really was a psychopath. Uday bludgeoned and stabbed one of Saddam's favourite attendants to death at a 1988 party. He also continued to make a name for himself among the Iraqi people for his sadism and cruelty. He was prone to beating and torturing his servants and anyone else who displeased him. He was also known to spend time studying new torture devices and methods to improve his technique. He also treated his so-called friends poorly. In one report, he forced some of them to drink dangerous amounts of alcohol purely for his amusement. Uday was also a man of unrestrained sexual appetite sleeping with several women per night, up to five nights a week. He was known for raping young women, 
some as young as 12, who he found attractive, threatening theirs and their families' lives if they complained or spoke out against the crime. He would sometimes torture and kill his victims after sex. Many Iraqi women were forced off the streets into the back of his car and never seen again. Uday held several jobs during his father's regime, most notably publishing the most widely read newspaper in the country and heading Iraq's Olympic Committee. In that position, he was known to have beaten athletes who he felt did not perform up to expectations. He once tortured and kidnapped the captain of the Iraqi football team and sent him to a labour camp for three weeks just for missing a penalty. After that brief caveat, I'll get back to the story. In the aftermath of the conflict, seeking means of revitalising Iraq's war-ravaged economy and infrastructure, at the end of the 80s, Saddam turned his attention towards Iraq's wealthy neighbour, Kuwait. Using the justification that it was an historical part of Iraq, on August 2nd, 1990, Saddam ordered the invasion of Kuwait. This act would firmly put Saddam in the crosshairs of the US. In retaliation, a UN Security Council resolution was promptly passed, imposing economic sanctions on Iraq and setting a deadline by which Iraqi forces must leave Kuwait. When the January 15, 1991 deadline was ignored, a UN coalition force, headed by the United States, confronted Iraqi forces and a mere six weeks later had driven them from Kuwait. A ceasefire agreement was signed, the terms of which included Iraq dismantling its German chemical weapons programs, the previously imposed economic sanctions levied against Iraq remained in place. Despite this, the fact that his military had suffered a crushing defeat, Saddam claimed victory in the conflict. The Gulf War's resulting economic hardship further divided an already fractured Iraqi population. During the 1990s, various Shiite and Kurdish uprisings occurred. For the rest of the world, fearing another war, Kurdish independence, in the case of Turkey, or the spreading of Islamic fundamentalism, did little or nothing to support these rebellions and they were ultimately crushed by Saddam's increasingly repressive security forces. At the same time, Iraq remained under intense international scrutiny as well. In 1993, when Iraq forces violated a no-fly zone imposed by the United Nations, the United States launched damaging missile attacks on Baghdad. In 1998, further violations of the no-fly zone and Iraq's alleged continuation of its weapons program led to further missile strikes on Iraq, which would occur intermittently until February 2001. Members of the Bush administration had suspected that Hussein's government had a relationship with Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda organisation. In his January 2002 State of the Union address, 
US President George W. Bush named Iraq as part of his so-called axis of evil, along with Iran and North Korea, and claimed that the country was developing weapons of mass destruction and supporting terrorism. Later that year, UN inspections of suspected weapon sites in Iraq began, but little or no evidence that such programs existed was ultimately found. Despite this, on March 20, 2003, under the pretenses that Iraq had in fact a covert weapons program and that it was planning attacks, a US-led coalition invaded Iraq. Within weeks, the government and military had been toppled. And on April 9, 2003, Baghdad fell. Saddam, however, managed to elude capture. In the months that followed, an intensive search for Saddam began. While in hiding, Saddam released several audio recordings in which he denounced Iraq's invaders and called for resistance. Finally, on December 13, 2003, Saddam was found hiding in a small underground bunker near a farmhouse in Ad-Dawar, near Tikrit. From there, he was moved to a US base in Baghdad where he would remain until June 30th, 2004. When he was officially handed over to the interim Iraqi government to stand trial for crimes against humanity. During the subsequent trial, Saddam would prove to be a belligerent defendant, often boisterously challenging the court's authority and making bizarre statements. On November 5th, 2006, Saddam was found guilty and sentenced to death. The sentence was appealed, but was ultimately upheld by the Court of Appeals. On December 30th, 2006, at Camp Justice, an Iraqi base in Baghdad, Saddam was hanged. Despite his request to be shot, he was buried in Al-Arja, his birthplace, on December 31st, 2006. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this dark episode. Yeah, so Saddam Hussein. Like I alluded to in the beginning of the episode, and in previous episodes, Iraq and the Middle East is in absolute chaos and a constant state of flux. The geopolitical landscape over the last 20 years has dramatically changed for the worse, and to me it seems like there is one glaring thing that's missing. And that is Saddam Hussein, or somebody like that. As a spotty-faced teen, I remember the war in Iraq quite vividly. Paired with the war in Afghanistan, it was the first I could consciously remember. At the risk of showing my age, the wars in Yugoslavia, Bosnia and the Chechen war don't really resonate with me, as I was too young to remember or understand. Now... As I said, I remember the war starting, the pictures of the shock and awe tactics of Bush and Blur pummeling Baghdad's military infrastructure, and the subsequent invasion and toppling of Saddam. Then of course, the search, capture and execution of Saddam. As I've got older, I've researched the war more, and I've come to believe that yes, 
Saddam was a disgustingly evil human being, but he was necessary. He kept the region in check, he kept extremism in check, and he kept Iran in its place. This is no offence to anybody living, or regrettably dead, that served their country bravely in this war, but I firmly believe that the invasion of Iraq was for oil. Not because of WMDs, not because of nuclear weapons, and not because he was helping terrorists. It was so we could have oil. The same blood that's on Saddam's hands for that war are also on Bush and Blur's, and they too are war criminals. I know that that will piss some people off, but it's true. They didn't make the world a better place. They booted a hornet's nest, caught it, shook it, and made the world worse. So to end my little rant, and don't get me wrong, hindsight is a brilliant thing, but was Saddam Hussein a necessary evil? Some people may say yes, and others may say no. Before we go any further, next week will be our Christmas special, and the last of season two, before I go on my annual Christmas break. So fortunately, or unfortunately, whichever way you look at it, you will get a bonus episode next week. Anyway, if you could please drop a review on this show, it really does help the podcast out. The more reviews, the more the algorithm pushes the show out. If you think friends and family may be interested in the podcast, then share it with them. Links to all socials are below. The link to the show's Patreon is also below. This is for people who want to support the channel, but you don't have to. But here's where you can find our other podcasts, This Week in History. This is a dive into the week's grisly, gruesome, or just random events throughout history. As always, if you've been listening for a while, and not subscribed, please do it, in that way you never miss an episode. So with all that out the way, thank you again for listening. Join us next time for our next episode as we delve into another event and more dark history. <laughs>